put them in a situation where they're thrust into a, a scenario they're not accustomed to. There's various steps of this chain, the, the trip and stumble and then rise to the occasion and then overcome the, the villain essentially. Pretty much from the first time I saw an animated feature film, I was hooked. And it didn't matter that the first time I saw an animated feature film was when I was 14. I just carried on being hooked. I love them. I never miss a single one. I always use the, the excuse that my children need to be the first to see the new Finding Nemo, or in this case Finding Dory, or whatever it might be, but it's really me that wants to watch them. I love them, and I love them because they're intentional. I love them because they're designed very well, and you get a sense that they've been extremely intricately thought through. But there's one animated series in particular, well not series, series of films that I'm borderline obsessed with. And that's the Kung Fu Panda movies. <laughs> it would be remiss of me not to admit to you that at least 50% of the reason for starting this podcast in the first place was the hope that at some point in time I would find somebody crazy enough to have a conversation with me about how Kung Fu Panda is arguably, and its subsequent films, are arguably the greatest examples of modern leadership we can find in the pantheon of cinema and motivational speaking and TED Talks and whatever else it is that's available to us. But I'm glad to report to you, dear listener, that I finally found that person, a gentleman by the name of Charlie Quirk, who is one of my favorite internet friends. <laughs> we found each other on Twitter and very quickly realized we were brothers from another mother. Charlie is, jeez, uh, he's had an incredible career, worked across a number of extraordinary brands is also extremely passionate about film and in one particular uh, moment in lockdown found the time and energy to produce this really cool PowerPoint deck which is a summary of 50 of the greatest insights that he's uh, managed to garner from 50 of his favorite films. So I'll definitely be sharing that in the show notes. But we had a conversation about Kung Fu Panda and Kung Fu Panda and leadership. And uh, if you hate this show, uh, that's tough because you can expect a lot more of these because I had so much fun doing it. Uh, but yes, without any further ado, uh, this is Charlie Quirk and myself talking about the greatness of Po, Master Shifu, and of course, Master Ugwe. So Charlie Quirk, I'm not sure what the protocol is do i wish you a happy new president this week what what's the what's the vibe in san francisco well i mean it's one of the bluest states in the union so uh there are people celebrating in the streets and letting the horns off and it is a very positive vibe it's certainly been an, an interesting last couple of months but uh sure. it looks like there's going to be continued drama with the president challenging what's going on so we'll wait to see how the cookie crumbles i guess what I'm hearing, though, is that even if you didn't vote blue, you're sure as hell acting like you did at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's very much a polarized society at the Big moment. Time. So yeah. I, can, I can definitely see that that's the case. And uh, people are very reticent around expressing their, their opinions, uh, certainly sure. in California. Well, I think it, that's not a purely political challenge, is it? That's, that's sort of endemic uh, in pretty much every topic um, that's worth talking about especially when it comes to talking about it on the internet. But tell me a little bit quickly how an Aussie from Western Australia comes to be on the Western coast of the United States. Well, how did you find yourself in San Francisco? Sure. Uh, well, I've lived in San Francisco for five years, just 
nearly. I've been in the US yep. for 13 years. I first came, I was in Minneapolis. I worked for a, a brand strategy consulting firm. Then I sort of made the transition into the ad world and, and been in the tech world for a consulting for the last couple of years, first at PayPal, then at Google. You know, I would say, you know, the, the essence of who I am, I'm a brand strategist. I'm a complexity busting storyteller. Well, I like to think I am anyway. And uh, yeah, I generally work with tech companies and helping them define their brand and help telling compelling stories around it. And your Twitter profile tells us that you, you've had a, a fairly lengthy stint in the advertising world as well, as much as you've worked closely with those big tech brands. Are you still, do you find yourself in the advertising world at the moment or are you transitioning? Uh, what's happening in your life? I actually have a, a bunch of freelance tech clients right now. So going between a range of different sort of internal marketing teams working on big brands. Some are more than exciting than others, but uh, it certainly is uh, an exciting time to be in the business. I mean, San Francisco, for all its faults, uh, which there are legion, it, it's still a wonderful place <laughs> to live, if you ask me. And there's oh, a, sure. yeah. a, a great deal of career opportunities that seem to spring up. And I have a lot of good uh, you know, current clients and, and previous clients that I have good relationships with. So it's a good place to be for me right now. I had the, um, the distinct privilege of visiting... San Francisco with a, a group of fellow entrepreneurs, sort of a, call it a delegation, and then it sounds important, uh, <laughs> a couple of years ago, may, maybe three or four years ago now, it's, it's quite some time back. And um, it felt certainly at the time that a, as much as it is this incredible hotbed for talent and innovation, and is maybe the highest concentration of those things on the planet right now, mm. I suppose if we take a very westernized view of it, it, it felt like a city... On kind of on the edge, like almost at boiling point. Has that changed for the good or, or do you feel like that trend is still moving sort of in that direction or did I get that wrong completely? No, I, I think that's a reasonable characterization of it. Certainly, uh, you know, I would go down, I live in Hayes Valley, which is sort of very close to downtown, right near the, the full house houses at uh, Alamo Square, which is most famous for. And I would get Bart down, which is a train down downtown, sort of down t towards the Embarcadero and yeah, it, it sort of has a post-apocalyptic vibe a lot of the time. And mm. even if you walk down Market Street, which is the main thoroughfare, it, there is a certain, um, you know, you, you wouldn't want to do it after dark. I mean, I don't want to be sort of sensationalistic about it, but as, as a guy, I feel pretty safe. But there are certain, um, you know, you hear some horror stories, certainly certainly with women being just sort of accosted and, and harassed. It's just, it's not optimal for, you know, the way you want to live today. And, and sort of uh, a lot of people are sort of, quite brazen with sort of uh, some illegal activities. I'll leave it at that. But at the same time, it's um, hopefully things turn around, but the city certainly has its challenges right now. Yes, and I'm wanting to depart at all from the seriousness of what you've just shared, but um, have you walked past the Full House houses singing the Full House theme song? Uh, you know what? That is a daily occurrence for me. And, and I okay, actually, good. <laughs> I, I have an 11 year old child and I take her up there literally every day. I, I have her and we have a series of hundreds of photos now in front of those, those photos. We are in, in the, the painted ladies, which they're called. Uh, yeah. We also, we watched uh, Fuller House together, which is ex extraordinarily corny. Uh, you know, but yeah, the same time, <laughs> the original Full House was pretty corny. It was just, that was 1993. Say, has, hasn't <laughs> aged particularly well. That's no, <laughs> no. I, I still, uh, I'm trying to understand the appeal of Dave Coulier uh, as Uncle Joey. I mean, I have not laughed once at what he said ever when, when I was a so, child or today. <laughs> yeah, I think he hangs heavily on the coattails of John Stamos. 
and is is bathed in his light. And as such, perhaps we don't recognize his inability to act. Um, <laughs> it, it took me a fair, a fair while, though, to recognize that he and, oh, God, his name's uh, uh, escaped me now, the yeah, guy Bob from Sa- Newsroom. Or, or Jeff Daniels. Yes, it took yeah. me a very long time not to realize that Jeff Daniels and him are not are not the same person. <laughs> you know what's <laughs> remarkable? They're, they're both sons of Michigan. They're both from Michigan. Really? Yeah, and, but for the longest time there was this wives' tale. Are they relatives from Michigan, perhaps? Uh, I'm not sure, but there was this wives' tale that Dave Coulier was, in fact, Canadian because he had an, an affair with Alanis Morissette. She actually wrote a song about it. Uh, I'll leave listeners to Google that at their own leisure. But uh, there, there's some controversy that surrounded uh, Dave Coulier for a period. That's amazing. And, he, I mean, he's watching the show because, I mean, it sort of appeared back in my life with my um, my kids, my teenage kids, sort of getting into it as a, a sort of, you know, brainless evening traditional sitcom kind of post-dinner viewing activity. <laughs> and they started watching it at, at my ex's house and – then uh, you know my my daughter would come back and, and talk to me about the storyline that I'd experienced like twenty years ago, and I just thought to, there's there's clearly something about that recipe that works very well because as much as when I watch it I don't feel like it's aged well, there's something about that. Maybe maybe it's the painted ladies, maybe it's San Francisco, maybe that's the secret because Mrs. Doubtfire is also aged particularly well and it enjoys the same San Franciscan uh, flavor, doesn't it? Yeah, well, you know what? Both are also about modern blended families. Um, sure. And, and Very I think, true. I think uh, certainly with uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, that was, you know, you often see like, you know, the parent trap is probably the best example of the kids wanting the parents to get back together and they get back together. In this case, it's like, guess what? A lot of marriages end in divorce and, and the, the hmm. father and the mother go their separate ways, but they both love the kids and they both want the best outcome. So, you know, in the, in the case of Full House, Danny Tanner was a widower, so he needed the help of his, you know, best friend and his um, mm. you know, former brother-in-law. And I don't mm. know, there's just something modern and uplifting about it rather compared to it was a departure from the typical cookie-cutter nuclear family that was depicted in sitcoms of the past. Sure, like the Cosbys. Yeah, Cosbys, <laughs> Leave it to Beaver. Ironically enough. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, so, but that's a that's a tremendous point that that I hadn't really considered because I mean, as you argue that, that that those were they were swimming upstream, weren't they? That wasn't the the blueprint uh, at the time, and and so maybe it it opened up new opportunities for comedic angles or for storytelling angles that they wouldn't have been able to explore normally, and that was the secret. It seems like it. I mean, you, you see a little bit of dabbling in that with um, certainly the Brady Bunch, certainly with different mm, strokes. Mm. Uh, just people trying to, you know, which probably hasn't aged well with some of the, just the whole narrative arc. But at the same time, I, I do think, you know, the networks were trying to take some oblique angles to to tell a more interesting story. And I think, you know, for, for better or worse, you know, Step by Step, I think was another one in the 90s, which was kind of a little off kilter. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. God, and then I'm going to be now, singing that song for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. That was good. Day by day. What was that? Uh, Patrick Duffy and Suzanne Summers. Oh, I remember wow. Cody. I remember just not laughing at one thing he ever said, but he was the, he was the <laughs> attempted to be the, an Urkel like character. Yes. Very underwhelming. That's going back. eh? I haven't thought about that. Honestly, I haven't thought about that in about 20 years. Yeah, you're not missing much. In case case listeners hadn't gathered it already, the the thing that binds you uh, and me, the fact, obviously, we've been friends forever. And when I say forever, maybe three months and on Twitter, um, (laughs) 
is this this mutual love for the medium of, of film and television. And um, you're probably far more qualified to, to comment on both. And I'm, I'm a fan, whereas you're a student. Um, but um, you actually reached out to me and said that you'd built this really amazing insights deck, which normally when somebody in the ad industry reaches out to me and says, I've built an insights deck, I fall asleep. But what you did was take 50 of your, your favorite films and combine your your vocation with your avocation, right? Your, your work with your passion and produce this really amazing deck that spoke about the sort of the meeting place, the Venn diagram of you know the storyline and the tagline producing this incredible insight that we can garner from these films that we love so much. Um, what was the inspiration for that little, uh, and obviously I'll put a link in the show notes so that uh, listeners can can have a look at it because it's, it's really magic. But what was the what was the genesis of that? The genesis really was uh, over the years I'd noticed myself being in meetings uh, saying, oh, have you seen Moneyball? Well, there's a great scene <laughs> in it where he says, you know, you, what's, what problem are we solving? And I was yes. always quoting this particular scene. I'm going, what is it? And I think because people can understand movies, they'll, they'll watch it and they'll say there is a message to be taken away. And it's also sure. done in a very clear, energizing, entertaining way. And I feel, you know, I've sat through a million different strategy presentations. A lot of the time, with the greatest respect, that they put you to sleep. And it's like someone has missed the entertaining gene that needs to mm. be, that needs to exist within this presentation. You know, if people can uh, find it entertaining, they'll remember it more easily and they'll say, that's so true. And that's such a powerful analogy for the problem I'm trying to solve, whether it's a metaphor or something else. So I thought, Quarantine started. The shelter in place started here in San Francisco in March, and and I thought, wow, you know what? I'm just going to. Um, I'm not much of a sourdough baker, so I thought, um, here here are some insights that I've gleaned from movies over the years. And I started off with some obvious ones, and then I was really sort of got off the beaten path. And yeah, I thought, how many can I get? People were saying, well, fifty is too much. I'm like, well, let, let's see how many I can get. And I got there, and there's plenty more have popped up in the time since. But it, it was a fun experience. So, I mean, to the eternal loss of the sourdough eaters in your neighborhood. But I, I, um, what I would love to do is at some point in time, dig through some of those titles. Because I actually want to challenge you on one or two of your insights. Um, sure. I, I mean, I loved them. I thought, I thought they were incredible. And what you have done through is, is cut through the superficial layer of the film, the, the, your, your sort of first viewing experience, your virgin experience of the film into the thing that you typically pick up after two or three viewings. And so many of the films that you listed are, are classic, rewatchable movies, certainly from, from, you know, kind of from our youth. And um, I mean, some of them I think I've watched 50 or 60 times. Uh, <laughs> but I would, love to, I would love to debate some of those a little with you because I, I suppose that's the other thing that's beautiful about the medium of film or any art for that matter is that different audiences or different viewers will garner slightly different truths out, out of that depending on their own biases or what it is that they need to see at any given point in time. You know, so many different opinions can come from the viewing of, of one. I mean, I, you, when I look at movies like There Will Be Blood, you know, different people will come out with very different experiences of that type of film, depending on where they are or kind of what emotional state they're in. It, it, isn't that really the beauty of art, that it allows us different perspectives and different interpretations of the same production? That's exactly it. And and this is sort of a lot of the time in, in writing this deck, I discovered a quote from uh, Quentin Tarantino that he said, if a million people see my movie, I hope they see a million different movies. And yeah. I think a, a movie like There Will Be Blood, it, it's a 
it's such a powerful film at face value if you take it literally. At the same time, it's like, is it a metaphor for, you know, unchecked ambition? Is it sort of symbolic and representative of of American ambition and greed? I mean, it depends Mm -hmm. on who you are and what you're looking for. There are many things to take away from that. So I, I think it's it's healthy that art can be analyzed in this sense. And, and I think that the layperson doing it makes for a more robust discussion than often the sort of very elite, highbrow film critics doing so. You know, that a lot sure, of those reviews sure. are for the, the sort of intelligentsia of, of the craft. And I think if, if we can do it as, as laypeople, as, as fans of film, not necessarily professionals, I think it can uh, make it feel much more practical and useful and, and engaging. So, so another thing that listeners of the show won't be aware of is that I've been trying to find somebody in the world to talk to about what I deem to be the most important single piece of art produced in the history of mankind on the topic of leadership. In fact, I was thinking about this long before I even started this podcast. In fact, it might have been the reason I started the podcast was simply to have the conversation with somebody someday about Kung Fu Panda, mm. which I would argue is, is the most important cinematic achievement of our time when it comes to evaluating the dynamism of modern leadership. Mm. Please comment on the following statement. Sure. <laughs> is Kung Fu Panda the greatest movie in the history of mankind when it comes to leadership? Well, it's a, <laughs> it's a tough one to ask. I, I, know, I know you are, but like, <laughs> I'm trying to think of another opportunity that really springs to mind where people are empowered to become their best selves. I mean, you know, you could say, well, is it the karate kid? But okay, maybe, but there is some pretty overt, you know, mentorship. There's pretty sort of a lot of handholding that goes on. You could look at a movie like Whiplash, like where an overbearing, you know, abusive teacher actually forces the best out of the student. Uh, You know, is it that? You could look at Star Wars. Is having an absentee father figure uh, who's turned to the dark side enough to um, shine the light of the better angels of the student, like in this case, Luke. You know, we could argue argue this all day long, and I would just say there's a lot going for Kung Fu Panda as it relates to personal growth, as it relates to leadership in an unlikely figure. Yeah, that, and I mean, I make light of of the topic, but there's 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 some seriousness behind it in that I spend a hell of a lot of time thinking about this topic and the topic really is are great leaders born or made and i think we can kind of all agree that it's somewhere in the middle there is an aptitude for leadership a, a talent for leadership a, a a natural um charisma or gravitas that certainly many people are born with whether they use that constructively or not is is another question but then there's also obviously work that we can do to become the fullest version of ourselves especially when it pertains to something like leadership. This is the great question. And, and you, you know, you've listed some incredible films that I think explore this in depth. But what I love about this very innocent, uh, certainly on the face of it, animated series is that over the three sequels, well, the two sequels and the, and the original film, which, by the way, I think are remarkably well connected in terms mm. of, you know, very often, like if you go with like an Ice Age or something like that, there's... It, it was very clearly a, let's see how Ice Age works. And, oh, my God, it was a huge success. And how can we make a second part to this? Whereas sure. there was a sense that um, 
there was always a trilogy intent to Kung Fu Panda and it was always connected in that way. And if it wasn't, they did a hell of a job of creating that continuity. Mm. But it explores to the fullest extent the, the complexity of realizing your potential, being conflicted in that new space, and then suddenly having to wrestle with the responsibility of leading others. But, you know, in, in thinking back on this film, what are the, what are the, the, the moments that sort of stand out to you as being surprising considering it? You know, we're probably not the audience for it. We're, it's an animated feature, ideally, I guess, targeted at, at our kids. What what sure. stood out for you? Yeah, I mean, many things really stood out. One of the things about, you know, I actually watched this film the week my child was born. So this is in 2009 and the movie came out in 2008. Okay. And one of the thing, the surprising things that I've told a lot of people about being a parent is you see a lot of these films that you wouldn't have otherwise have watched. Now, a lot sure. of these films, they are sort of targeted towards kids, but they're also fun for the whole family, uh, quote unquote. So there has to have some degree of, you know, uh, value, you know, some mm. uh, some things that- uh, Some appeal for all audiences, yeah. Exactly. And you see that with Kung Fu Panda. And, and I actually, just in researching this, I didn't realize that where in the development, they said, why don't we make it a hero, a quote unquote, hero's journey type narrative? which was sort of what Star Wars was based on. I'm re- referencing the um, Joseph Campbell construct for that. Basically, I, I'm not, are you familiar with the hero's journey, by the way? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Well, sure. It, like they basically wanted to get a sort of an, a lay person, a, a regular, regular character, yeah. um, you know, put them in a situation where they're thrust into a, a scenario they're not accustomed to. There's various steps of this chain, the the trip and stumble and then rise to the occasion and then overcome yep. the the villain essentially. And that's yeah. that's the essence of this story. But um sorry, I'm rambling a bit. There's a there's a range of things that we can touch on, I think. Number one is that I think serendipity happens. You know, some things mm-hmm. can fall into our lap. And for better or worse, we, we can ignore them or we can be open to the chances they afford us. You know, when Poe accidentally finds himself chosen as the, the dragon warrior, he can, you know, run from the issue or he can attempt to rise to the occasion. And, and the fact that he chooses to rise to the occasion does open himself up to a range of opportunities, even though he wasn't prepared in the moment, but he was able to to grow and face them. So I think for me, number one, the fact that good luck, bad luck happens to us all, it's what you do with that when confronted with it that I think was a, a, a big key takeaway in the, in the leadership realm for me. What, what about yourself? Yes, I mean, there's a philosophical element to it where, I, I mean, I, I was on board the moment I met Master Ugwe. I think he's so hmm. well-written and he has this, really appealing nature about him it's it's bizarre that you could feel such affinity for a an animated character so quickly in terms of your introduction to that character but right up front his almost the second or third line that he says to to master shifu while he kind of says it over master shifu's back is you know one often finds one's destiny on the path one takes to avoid it which is such a master ugwe Mm. thing but he basically sells the plot in the first eight minutes of the film Mm. And that's the, that's the entire story, right? Whether you're talking about it from Shifu's perspective or from Ugwe's perspective or from Kai's perspective or Poe's perspective, that's all of their stories into, you know, kind of wound up in that one single truth is that, you know, often the work that we do to escape our destiny, our fate is, is, is the work that enables it, that realizes it. And, and that's illustrated beautifully by the, the duck who's, a name I've forgotten that you know Shifu sends off to the jail to tell mm. the the uh, the guard to double the 
double the gates, double the security to prevent Kai from escaping. It's the feather from that duck that he sent that, you know, enables Kai to escape, mm. which is an incredibly powerful illustration. And the more you think about it, like quite gobsmacking from a philosophical perspective. But but even before that, what I think this movie has achieved more so than many of, of the great animated features of our time is I think an absolute masterstroke in casting. Totally agree. Because there's this dynamic around like get big names to do animated characters. And that's amazing because obviously everybody wants to go see Brad Pitt being a shrimp and, and you know, in Finding Nemo or whatever it might be. But the moment you're introduced to Poe, even if you have never heard of Jack Black or Tenacious D or any of those other projects that he's been involved in, you fall in love with this character, right? This, this um, way of speaking, this way of being, this, the mannerisms that are so Jack Blackish, but that work so perfectly for Poe. And then you just continually meet other characters that I think are so beautifully cast for their parts, Dustin Hoffman for Master Shifu. I mean, what was your, you know, your in initial impressions around casting? You know, I actually did have a note to to mention that because I think, and I'm glad you brought up Tenacious D because Jack Black has this sort of class clown everyman shtick. We go, oh, that's kind of a, a charming, funny guy, and then that Tenacious D song. I remember when that came out, and you go, Gee, this guy has magnificent pipes. Like what a, what a you, you <laughs> do not, sing. you do yeah, you really kind of don't expect so much energy and power to reside within this sort of schlubby everyman. And yeah, the fact yeah. that that happens, and he is quite charming, he is very sweet-natured, I mean, it couldn't be cast better if you ask me. There are, you know, even like Tai Lung, who I believe was um, Ian McShane, I believe. Yes. Did, yes. did a great job. I think um, Angelina did a great job. David Cross as Crane. Uh, Dustin Hoffman, obviously, was was. You got a Seth Rogen thrown in there. You got. Well, I forgot about Seth Rogen. Yeah, but I mean, Dustin yeah. was. I, I thought Master Shifu, Dustin Hoffman, was absolutely magnificent. Um, he's sort of this hard ass, but with a heart. Like he's not just a total asshole. So, I, I think it was really well done. Uh, and I, I'm, I'd struggle to think of a better cast uh, animated film off the top of my head. Maybe Aladdin. Yeah, maybe actually that's true. Yeah. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So, so Jack Black's an interesting one for me because he's had this, he's had a bizarre career, mm. hasn't he? And, and maybe it's because he doesn't care. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. But it really, I mean, like, if you go through his IMDb, I mean, this is an extremely talented guy. You look at, I mean, okay, it, it, I need to be careful what I say here because if you look at School of Rock, which is arguably his kind of most palatable success, he's really playing himself if you think about yep. it. So we haven't really seen him do too much outside of, of that. I mean, he's no Philip Seymour Hoffman, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he really does seem to love what he does. And it comes through in this sort of very infectious, even in, the, even in his voice work, you're, you're drawn mm. in immediately. There's something magical that he does that I don't quite know how to articulate. 
It's it's a tough one because I think there is a there's an approachability to him and there's a there's a purity to him. You get the vibe that if you met him in real life, he would be quite a nice guy. He means well, uh, not yeah. sort of one of those stars that would tell you to f off. So I do think <laughs> there's a sort of there's a, a relatability piece to it, but at the same time, you, you you can imagine that when someone does someone like Jack Black does become focused, there is a they're really focused. They're really you know there, there's certain leadership. I guess, juice to that personality that would make you want to fall in line. And you certainly see that with the cast in the movie. Like, uh, uh, you know, when it starts, they're like, oh, who is this dude? You know, who is this nothing burger? But then they go, oh, actually, there's a meaningful purpose to this persona. And I think it becomes credible as the film goes along very much. So I I don't know if you've ever um, had the pleasure of listening to any of the films, actually, but, but with headphones on. No, I have not. So, so do yourself a favor. I think, and here's, here's my unbridled love and admiration for Kung Fu Panda going to come through without any um, <laughs> reservation whatsoever. But I, if, if the Oscars acknowledged animated features outside of the realm of the best animated feature category, which is something I want to talk to you about. So let's put a pin in that quickly because I sure. think that's an important topic. I think this would have won for sound editing. I think the sound mm. editing on this film is sensational. And if you listen to that Tai Lung jailbreak scene mm. with, with a proper set of headphones on, it's unbelievable. It's some of the best sound I've ever heard. And I don't, I don't even know how they conceived or created some of the sounds. And I, it's a real shame I didn't see it in the cinema because I think, I, th- I think I saw the subsequent films, but I didn't see uh, the first film. I, I just think it's sensational. The question I want to ask you is if Avengers Endgame – is not an animated feature. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we've, we've come to the point where I think there are certain films uh, at a blockbuster level that are so in, integrated from a CGI uh, perspective that they are, for all intents and purposes, animated features with a live-action character in them. You know, in the, when we were very young, there was like Mary Poppins, which was you know, mm. <laughs> it's kind of a similar sort of thing, you know? Why, why do... In your mind, why do animated features still fail to get the recognition that their live-action counterparts do when there's no doubt that they take the same level of investment and work and maybe more uh, to create? Look, it's hard to know. And, and the, one of the long-running stories in, in Hollywood is that a, a film like in comedies don't get their, their sure, due. I sure. mean, we, we, if you think of a comedy like Coming to America or even, you know, um, The Nutty Professor, I mean, Eddie Murphy played several different characters. Yeah, sure, they are caricatures of different personas oftentimes, but the range and diversity and the effort and the variety that goes into performing so many different things like that I yeah. think t- is much more sophisticated than sometimes, you know, don't want to um, don't want to ruffle any feathers here. He's probably the greatest living actor, but Daniel Day-Lewis goes into one character and he goes bullish on that and he's the greatest actor of his generation. But I think the range of playing multiple characters and multiple different flavors of personality often, you know, account for much more or it's the degree of difficulty to use a diving analogy is significantly higher than, than just a one-dimensional character. I would yeah. say um, in the realm of animated films, for better or worse, people just see moving pictures and they go, well, it's for kids. And yeah. it's, I've only recently got into um, a lot of anime films, you know, watch Akira, watch Ghost in the Shell of late, mm. and they are unequivocally adult films. They are like, sure. you know, I have an 11-year-old, and she was like, oh, geez, this is a bit rough to watch. So I do think maybe it's <laughs> just a, we- yeah, it's a, it's a Western paradigm that we think, 
moving pictures must be for kids. And, and as a result, they don't get their just due. It's such a valid point around comedy, though, because obviously there's a crossover here. It's a very few animated features aren't funny, right? That's, that's one of yeah. their primary objectives is how do we keep both sets of audiences entertained? Uh, and there's some really interesting uh, attempts at that that have, are sort of coming out of, the, out of the way, and especially from Sony Pictures. I think I, I loved Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs for that reason. I thought mm. it had really offbeat kind of left-field hu- humor that kids love, but that adults were... Again, brilliant casting. You know, a similar sort of thing with film that's just been released now, The Willoughbys, which I haven't watched mm. in totality, but also just really interesting, offbeat, left field, serious topics, but interesting interpretation of them. And the point that I think you're making is that like comedy is hard, especially when somebody's mm. going into the cinema expecting to laugh, right? Yeah. Now you're trying to do comedy over and above the complexity of the animation work and voice work and, and appealing to multiple audiences and making sure it's timely and you don't even have the luxury of being offensive. You know, it, it's tough. It must be really difficult to strike that balance right and have a cultural impact like some of these films do. I, I, I don't know. I think they are they're grossly underestimated in their in their importance in the kind of in the in the in the ecosystem of cinema. I, I totally agree. And I think to, to prove your point, I think you see comedic actors that play dramatic roles. They generally nail it. But dramatic actors trying to be funny yes. doesn't always work. And yeah. a couple of ones that spring to mind, uh, you see Walter White, Brian Cranston. You know, he was the dad yes. of Malcolm in the Middle. And then yes. he, he, he plays Breaking Bad and, he, you know, Anthony Hopkins called that the greatest acting he's ever seen. And yes. he was this sort of off the wall slapstick actor. He was great in Malcolm in the Middle, but he was a, he was a, he was comic relief, right? Another yeah, yeah. one. Um, Look at a Sandler going to uncut gems or something there like you that. Go. Yeah. That's a good example. And there's some funniness in that role, but there's some real panache. And there's some good, yeah. a really good one was um, Eric Banner, who's uh, from my home country. He was this really sort of. I don't want to say lowbrow, but this very shticky TV comic. He had his own, like he did all the sketch comedy. I did not know that. Oh yeah. Then he pl- I don't know if you've seen this. Um, no. He played a movie called uh, is the lead in a movie called Chopper, which came out in two thousand. It was based on a real life underworld figure in Australia. They yeah. couldn't figure out who to play this role. And Chopper Reed, who the movie's based on, he said, "Oh, why don't you get Eric Banner to play me? That guy's hilarious." <laughs> and sure enough, Eric Banner is cast in the role. And he, his career takes off as a result. He's yeah. cast in Black Hawk he Down. He put on like 30 pounds or something like that for the film and it, exactly. absolutely kill it, right? Yeah, but it, like to for someone to be funny but also menacing, that's a very tough uh, project to cast for. And he nailed it. Sure. He's, he's had a really good career in, in dramatic roles ever since. He's barely played a comedic role. So I, I just think it shows that if you can nail comedy, that's probably the highest degree of difficulty that can you, you can do. Dramatic roles should open up. So, that uh, net comedy should be more respected than it is. Are you saying that Daniel Day Lewis couldn't pull off Master Shifu? Look, uh, there's nothing because, because we love Daniel Day Lewis, Charlie. Yeah, there's, like, there's, just be careful look, where you go in there. There's nothing I don't think um, Daniel Day Lewis couldn't pull off. Like there's there's some funny parts in Gangs of New York, his personality, but I would sort of put him in the same um, category as. And I think this guy did a magnificent job in the Grand Budapest Hotel, and that's uh, Ray Fiennes. Ray Fiennes is a very dramatic, dramatic, dark actor, 
but he nails it. I mean, he, he can go he can go dark, but he can you know bring some levity to the occasion, and he's magnificent in the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yeah, that's a sensational film. And to imagine that he's both the Red Dragon and Oof. Monsieur, whatever it is, uh, in, yeah. in in Grand Budapest. I'm going to have to watch Grand Budapest this weekend. It's it's one it's one of those that you do at least once a quarter. Oh, totally. It, no, it's sensational. So I think. One of the reasons why I love this film is that it, and this is, I, I guess, if I list the, you know, the top twenty films that have had the most impact on my life, is that as I mentioned before, it's it's fairly multi layered and does get better with regular viewings. The the, the jokes actually get funnier, um, the characters get more endearing. There's subtleties that you pick up that you might not have picked up before. It really is the gift that that keeps on giving. And, you know, as we've discussed before, it transitions really nicely into these other sequels. Was there a lesson? <laughs> I mean, I know you didn't watch it, scrutinizing it for personal life lessons. But, do, you know, look, looking back on it and, and you, know, you watched it at a relatively significant time of your life, was there anything in particular that stood out to you as being pretty useful advice for parents or for, for leaders, you know, on, on topic? You know, just when you were talking then, um, there was that, a well-known book in the last couple of years that's been used in leadership circles. It's by a guy called Ryan Holiday, and the book is The Obstacle is the Way. And yeah. just when you described Master Uguay there saying, I can't remember the exact quote, but basically on the path to something, you find something else, right? And yeah. Poe is not the prototypical sort of leader or, or you know, just leader of man or leader of any any group of people. Yet within his constitution, within his makeup, there is gems of wisdom and power to be unlocked that people have overlooked for the longest time. So I think it's identifying what looks like a weakness actually can be a strength. I think it's also the power of ignorance is a very important one. You know, they talk about mm, make, sure. be beginner's mind. When you go in there, like... um. Shifu is, you know, sort of dropping the hammer on Poe, saying, you, you, I'm going to train you the way I've trained all these other people. It's very uniform manner, very disciplined manner. But I think it's like, well, guess what? The lightning in a bottle that exists within Poe cannot be found elsewhere, whether it's, the, you know, his physical shape, whether it's certain elements of his personality that he can use to his, his advantage in defeating Tai Lung. So I think the power of sort of, oddballs and the power of ignorance in that sense is, is a very powerful thing to unlock what about yourself yeah i love i love how they they pulled that through into the climactic battle with kai yeah because there's a temptation there to just have poe do phenomenal kung fu um and that's actually it's an interesting topic because i mean this is a movie about the beauty of martial arts and some of the benefits of of, of that from a mindfulness and health perspective but the downside of that is that it's a relatively i mean if we want to be quite Woke. It's a relatively violent film for younger kids, and it's, I think in the subsequent films there are some pretty pretty hectic scenes that are certainly emotive, if if not quite like um, challenging, for, especially for younger kids. Sure. Um, but but not to depart from the point, I, what they do in in that climactic scene is that Poe is victorious over Kai not because he does brilliant kung fu. Well, it's certainly part of it, but because he exercises the strengths that everybody else perceived to be weaknesses. So, yeah. you know, 
pummels him into the ground using his his massive tummy and clenches sure. his enormous butt and <laughs> kind of uses it as a as an engine to 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 distribute phenomenal power and all of those lessons from you know which is very much hero's journey stuff you know you kind of have mm. this montage of memories from the the story of him climbing up to get a cookie or whatever it is that there's references back to all of the the lessons that were learned in order to um become the dragon warrior the, the mm. question i want to ask quickly is around this whole dragon warrior idea because it really does speak to fate and destiny and, and one of the big twists in the film is that you know he he finally gets his hands on the dragon scroll which is mm. this you know magnificent piece of kung fu history that's you know embedded in the jade palace in the mouth of a gold-plated dragon <laughs> you know it's built up throughout the entire film is that the it is the answer to all of life's questions and he opens mm. it up and and it's blank right yeah does does that mean that anybody could have been the Dragon Warrior? Does that mean that anybody is the Dragon Warrior or is Poe still the Dragon Warrior? Well, if you ask me, it's uh, the former rather than the latter. Like anybody can be the Dragon Warrior. Uh, it comes, you know, as he, and when he discovers that and he thinks back to the advice that his, his father gave him, uh, there is no secret ingredient. The ingredient yes. is ourselves. Um, you know, it reminds me of a Nike commercial from years gone by that I think had a killer song. It's like everything you need is already inside. So, mm. um, and, and the leadership is a choice. Yeah, we're all starting from different places, but you can sort of choose to how, uh, you know, your trajectory and altitude in life. And if you go after that, that's really the one thing that matters. It's not not about what, what advantages you have, what you were born with, um, the shortcomings that you have. It's like, make that decision to be a leader, make that decision to grow and become the best that you can be. And, and that's really the secret of life and, and of leadership, I think, as it relates to this story. So, so Poe is the dragon warrior, not because it was his destiny, but because he was the person who was willing to become that, you know, the, the, which again is like a deeply philosophical question. It brings yeah. into um, the spotlight, this entire debate around determinism and, luck and randomness and all of these elements that I think the film engages so graciously or gracefully because when you watch it enough times you realize that it it could have been anybody that fell in front of Ugwe um, yeah. and and that Ugwe could have pointed to and the possibility or the potential for dragon warriorness uh, really then was up to them it was a matter of accountability and as you said maybe sometimes even ignorance being bliss yeah, I mean, there's there's no question about that. I mean, and if you think of the Furious Five at the start, you know, he tells that whole story, and and they are very much a unit. They their their yeah. moves are probably predictable, and and I think, you know, it, choosing Poe to use an American football analogy is, is throwing a hail mary in the first quarter. Basically, like uh, this is a uh, high risk, high reward candidate, and it could be a glorious success or it could be a monumental failure. And for the purpose of the movie, it, it was a success. But I, I do think, you know, it, it also could have very easily gone south. Uh, so who knows exactly what the outcome is, if that was what the plan was, but I, I, it's certainly food for thought. I do think the unpredictability of a novice is is something very compelling. And it goes back to, so you could call it Donald Trump winning in 2016. It could be back to David and Goliath. It could be, you know, you could extend that Elon to- Musk. Uh, 
Elon Musk. Making cars, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of that happening in the world at the moment. The, the, the benefit of not being burdened by knowing anything about the industry that you're trying to disrupt, right? That is totally it. Um, like deviating from the norm. I mean, the Oakland A is in Moneyball, right? Um, yeah. We are, no, we are going to depart from conventional wisdom and see if that unlocks some type of opportunity. And chances are it might. Yeah, that the, I mean, it's so difficult to manufacture that kind of perspective when you're in the bottle. Uh, you know, my good friend yeah. Richard Mulholland always says it's so difficult to read the label when you're inside the bottle. <laughs> but that is really one of the most important leadership lessons out of these stories is that the the benefit of perspective, the benefit of original thought, even in something as revered and established as the cult and culture of Kung Fu which is literally millennia old, <laughs> you know, mm. is perhaps saving Kung Fu. Uh, yeah. you know, if you can do that, if you can see it from a new angle, if you can buck the trend slightly, you, again, maybe you, maybe you find your, your destiny on the path you take to avoid it. Honestly, I think that's got to be a tattoo. I just need to get a big turtle <laughs> on my back with like a little, or, one of those little audio clouds, little sound clouds coming out of it. And, and, and that, God, I love Uguay. <laughs> that was such an Uguay fanboy. You, you know, you uh, you mentioned Elon Musk. There was a um, I, I just discovered this, but uh, Sam Hinkie, who was the GM of the Philadelphia 76ers, who initiated the the trust the process, basically tanking in order to get great draft picks in order to succeed in the long term. Mm. Um, when he resigned because he was getting squeezed out, this was a few years ago. I didn't realize he was this heady intellectual guy. And he wrote a, th I'll, I'll share it with you, this 13-page resignation letter talking about the state of the union around all the decisions that he made and the, the successes and the misfires. But he does quote Elon Musk in there, and, and I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's something along the lines of, assume what you know is wrong. And with that assumption, what would you do if you had to sort of rebuild it from scratch? And I think it's, you could say, question every assumption that you make. I mean, there's many, many ways that you could spin that. But I do think that it sort of ingrains a bit of humility and ingrains a spirit of, um, you know, beginner's mind whenever you're approaching sure. a problem. And I think that does open, I guess, many opportunities for innovation going forward. Because if you go, like, well, it's the lampooned corporate statement, that's the way we've always done it. And it's like, okay, well, that's mm, idi mm. that's idiotic, <laughs> you know. So I, I yeah. do think just uh, approaching it with that beginner's mind and sort of question every assumption is more likely to open up opportunities that, than not. Yeah, but the problem is not that let's do it the way we've always done it doesn't work because very often it does. The problem yeah. is that when it stops working, it's catastrophic. Sure. <laughs> it's a hard stop. <laughs> yeah. And there is a tension in – being deliberate and being intentional and being a leader, you know, being sure of yourself and, and having a vision and having purpose and also being able to say, what would need to be true for me to be wrong here? Mm. What circumstances and, and to what degree could I entertain those possibilities and, and what credence should I give them? Because you also, you don't want to, you don't want to paralyze your ability to move forwards because you're always considering the counterbalance to your your vision or your plan, but certainly giving them the time they deserve is mm. a, is I think a skill that's grossly underestimated and undervalued in in business. I agree, and, and I think there was that. Um, I think his name is um, I, I can't remember his name. He, he's from my hometown. It's um, uh, it'll come to me. He was the CEO of Cathay Pacific for a number of years, 
and yeah. he was a Rhodes Scholar. It'll, it'll come to me. But he, he, I remember when he, he retired, he said something like his business sort of, I guess, maxim was the plains of Siberia are scattered with the bones of, you know, the, these campers who turned in for the night and thought that the pursuing wolves would do the same. And I do hmm. think that's sort of one of those clarion, like, you know, there's that other Andy Grove book, Only the Paranoid Survive. But there is this sort of paranoia, and paranoia is sort of a, a dirty word, but the best leaders have this degree of, okay, are we vulnerable in some way? I know this has worked to get us to this point. You know, I'm sure General Motors, I'm sure Ford have thought that. Then Elon Musk comes up and eats their lunch, right? Hmm. So hmm. I, I think there is, whether it's, you know, healthy reading, paranoia. A healthy paranoia, like just, a, you know, hype, I guess a hyper self-awareness. It's like if you, you know, walking down the street, you, you've got to have your wits about you. I think as a business leader, you're also going to think, where are we vulnerable? Are we a, a vulnerable from, you know, it might be industries that are adjacent to what we are. You know, I'm sure you yeah. know, book, bookstores did not foresee this uh, this Amazon, you know, juggernaut coming to them and now they're all out of business, right? So yeah. I, I think it's it's that I'm going to say hyper awareness of certain vulnerabilities as to what your business model is. I think that that brings, you know, it circles around really nicely again to that point we were making around perspective, because even if you do have the gumption to ask that question, even if you are inclined to be a little bit more critical of your successes, the the most difficult answer to that question, where are we vulnerable, is is very often in the blind spot. It's, mm. it's even if, even if you are sitting down together, you know, if you're surrounded by a whole bunch of people that look and sound like you, you'll all have similar concerns. Uh, you'll, you'll all list your most powerful competitor as being your biggest threat. Mm. You won't necessarily be thinking about somebody who's making electric cars to continue that, that case study. It brings to light the value of the, the, the dissenting voice. What, oh, another great film, underrated, I think, but World War Z, which obviously mm. is only a great film because it was a, a, a really great book. But there, there's that scene in, in Israel, uh, in I Jerusalem. Know, I, I think I know the one you're talking about. It hit me though. <laughs> yeah, I think it's. I'm gonna. I'm gonna again. I'm gonna butcher this, but it's the tenth man principle or something like that. That the you know Brad Pitt's character is is in the car with this this gentleman. Uh, I think he's like an Israeli uh, diplomat, and he's talking about the fact that they have this this rule when they're making the biggest decisions about what's good for their their community their society um uh their nation that there there has to be one person in the room that takes the most left field alternative view you know at at, at a particular problem or a particular scenario just so that somebody has that voice it's literally their job to to take the most outrageous perspective um, on what we think will happen or how it will happen. And that's why they were able to foresee this, this massive uh, apocalypse. But if you're a, a leader, it takes real guts to enable somebody in the room to be that voice and to give them the space to do that. Yeah, totally. And, and I actually thought you were going to mention uh, that scene where he uh, says movement is life, basically, to the people within that building, They're basically saying you, you can't stay here, you can't barricade yourself in your apartment, you need to keep moving, otherwise you're, you're Oh, my God. Certain, well, there there we go. There's a, the double whammy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, but that, that was a great one. I know in the armed forces and certainly military strategists, they have a technique or, or a drill they, they do called the, the red team strategy which is where they imagine if they are the opposition and they think, okay, we're like, 
what vulnerabilities could our opposition expose where they try and take down the government. So I, I think there is, you know, that, that's a slightly oblique take on the, the, the 10th man scenario, but I do think it's, it's interesting. It's like, okay, how can we go way outside the box? Because that might be where we are most vulnerable. And um, that's actually a great, that's an underrated film. And I think a lot of people would say, you know, like people of a certain age might go, well, it's a zombie film. I, I don't care if it's got Brad Pitt in it, but it's, if there is such a thing as a realistic zombie film uh, that has elements of a, a global contagion, has elements of like troubleshooting militaristically and from a governmental perspective, there's a lot. There's you know, there's a it's a great medley that film, and it and it comes off in a very realistic, well well acted way. Yeah, I I mean I think it's a it's a political drama masked as a a zombie thriller. Um, mm. It's, it's uh, the sum of all fears, but without Jack Ryan, you know, it's one of those. Sure. And it asks some really beautiful questions. I mean, the, the original book, as I understand it, which I haven't read, so kept wildly unqualified opinion is, is a book about, you know, how different nation states would res- respond to something mm. like a zombie apocalypse based on their current ideologies and mm. views about the rest of the world. So it is a, a deeply political story, actually. But Charlie, I, I am aware, first of all, that we've been speaking for an hour. Second of all, that I could do this easily for another hour, but probably need to respect your time. And our poor audience who's just listened to us talk for a, a good 60 minutes on the topic of Kung Fu Panda, which I never dreamed would be possible, but am absolutely elated <laughs> to have <laughs> discovered a friend on the internet who is willing to uh, humor me all the way through um, this topic. Your wisdom is, is incredible and your views are just are fantastic. So thank you for being so patient and, and so amped to, to participate in this fun little project with me. My pleasure, Mike. It's been an absolute honor. I would really love to dig into your deck, so to speak, and to find one or two other films that we could have similar hardcore debates around. I would love to, I'd love to unpack things like Whiplash in more detail uh have to talk to you about there will be blood it is it is realistically probably my my favorite film of all time i want to talk to you about the princess bride there's there's just some there's some gold in there so thanks for doing that it was really inspired everybody that i passed it on to has absolutely loved it and i look forward to chatting to you again soon looking forward to it sounds good and uh go springboks not really go wallabies <laughs> indeed, <Sorry>. indeed. <laughs> no, it's fine. We're still the world champions. It'll last for four years. We'll be fine. Sorry. <laughs> you do your no best. No worries. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right, mate. Cheers, man. Bye. Right, cheers. Thanks. Bye bye. You've been listening to the One Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man... Slash person is king. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.